0: Well, good morning. How are y'all doing? It's so good to be here with you. My name is Cameron. I'm a part of our women's ministry team here at the Fort Worth campus. I get to be a part of our teaching team. I'm so excited to start Romans. Uh, I hope that you are too. If not, I'm probably excited enough for all of us. Um, And that's fine. Maybe we'll get you there. So, If this is your first time at Women in the Word, welcome to you. I'm so glad that you're here. I hope that this will be a meaningful part of your spiritual walk each week as you gather with other women to study God's Word. Um, If you have any questions about what we do or why we do it, or you just need help finding the restroom, um, please stop one of us. Please ask. And um, I would love to get to know you too. So come say hi, introduce yourself. We have 15 weeks of Romans laid before us, and each week you'll have study questions that I would encourage you to work through to come to your small group with those already done. You will get more out of discussion. Um, The teaching will be more exciting to you, um, at least I hope so, if you've done those. Um, But if you're in a season of life where— it is all you can do just to get here every week, and you're coming in the door on two wheels, and it is a win for you just to show up at the right table every week. Um, I just want you to come, even if your questions aren't done, I just want you here. One other note before we dive in. You may notice each week when our teaching team stands up that we are teaching out of the English Standard Version. That is the translation of the Bible Christ Chapel has chosen to use. And it is a great translation because it's um, very close to a word-for-word translation from Greek, which the New Testament was written in, to English. But Greek and English are not always one-to-one languages. And so if you feel like it, the ESV is just a really hard translation for you to study in. You don't have to use it, y'all. Like, you can use another translation and find one that works for you, and you don't even have to pretend that you use the ESV when you come on Thursday. Um, if you need a recommendation about what to use, I'd be happy to give you one. Several people here would be happy to give you one. So just want you to know that. Okay, let's talk about Romans. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans 1 if you haven't already. On that sheet of questions that you went through today, hopefully you got to share about a letter or a note that you've received or written at some point that was particularly meaningful. I have always, always been a note writer. And there are different kinds of letters that you can write. We know intuitively that letters are highly personal and contextual. The way that you write a birthday card is different from how you would write a sympathy card. At least I hope that the birthday cards you're writing are different from sympathy cards. We know that if a letter was intended for your friend, but it came to you, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to you because the context isn't quite right. Uh, I came across a letter while I was preparing for this that I want to share with you. So it says, the letter says, I will always love you. And when I get married and move, I want you to know I will always love you. And when I have kids, I want you to know I will still love you. And when you die and I forget about your death, I want you to know I will always love you. Now, this seems like a sweet letter at face value. If I gave you this and asked you to tell me what it means, you probably wouldn't have a very hard time at least explaining to me the meaning of these words. The English is simple. The sentences and the structure of the sentences are simple. But what else would you want to know? to really understand what this means. You'd wanna know who wrote it, yeah. You'd wanna know who it was written to. Why was it written? Well, I wrote this. Uh, I wrote this to my mom when I was six and a half years old. And I don't really know why. Um, I guess I just had all these things on my mind and wanted her to know that I would still love her even after all these things happened, even after I forgot about her death, apparently pretty heartwarming, I know. Uh, And full disclosure, a lot of the notes I wrote were not things that were that sweet. They were more like, could you please get me to school on time? I'm tired of you making me late for first grade. Uh, That is a real letter that I wrote, but I showed you my better side here. So we know that letters are personal and context really matters. Context matters in letters, and as we begin our study in Romans, I want you to keep that in mind, because Romans is a letter. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul, who we'll talk more about in a second, but this was written to churches throughout Rome. And I want to paint a picture for you of what Rome was like when Paul wrote this. So this was written while Rome was under the rule of the Emperor Nero. And if you're familiar with Christian history or church history, you know that Nero was a particularly evil emperor towards Christians. He was known for uh, burning Christians alive in his garden to make light for his parties. But he was also particularly cruel to even the people who were on his team. Uh, There's an account of him taking two of his trusted advisors or guys who were high up in the military with him who would have been very close to him, and he forced them to be castrated and married. And then he paraded them up and down the streets of Rome just because he thought it was funny. They didn't betray him. They did not uh, do anything to disrespect him. He just thought that would be a good thing to do on a, I don't know, a Tuesday. And so he is a particularly cruel ruler. So this is what these Roman Christians are seeing for what it means to be in a position of authority and honor and leadership. And I want you to keep that in mind every week as you study. I think that Romans will take on a new life to you if you're thinking about what these Christians are seeing in their culture and how Paul's words would land on their ears in light of that. This uh, was a letter that was written while Paul was in Corinth on his third missionary journey. And we have a map here. So the purple star on the right there is Corinth. That's where Paul was when he wrote this. And this letter is going to Rome, which is where the orange star is up there in the left-hand corner. So Paul's not just in the next town over when he's writing to them and when he says he's heard of their faith. He's quite a ways away. This letter uh, is a little bit different from some of Paul's other letters. Some of his other letters were written to one person or to one church in a, particular, in a particular region. But this letter was written to all the churches throughout Rome. And so you'll see that Paul is going to cast his net a little bit more broadly in this letter. In some of the other letters, you would see more specific directives for those um, local bodies of believers. But Paul is painting with a little bit bigger brushstroke here. Either way, Romans is about one thing. Paul has one central message, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This letter is considered the most robust of all of Paul's letters, and Bible scholars almost unanimously agree that if we had no other letter in the New Testament other than Romans, we would have what we need. That is how rich and concrete and well-developed Paul's theology is here. So now let's turn our attention to the text itself, starting with Romans 1, verse 1. Read along with me. Paul begins. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These first seven verses are what I call the grand opening of Paul's letter to the Romans, and he starts with introducing himself. Now, hopefully, you read a little bit about Paul during your discussion time. So, you know that Paul was on the fast track to be the superstar in Jewish religious circles. He had it all going for him. And then what happened? He met the Lord. He encountered the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his whole life changed. He was commissioned by God to be an apostle to the early churches. So Paul held a real position of authority and a real position of honor in these early churches. His life was so drastically changed, though, that at the beginning of maybe the most important letter Paul ever writes, what does he leave with? I'm a servant. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. His primary title is not about his position of authority and honor, but he takes a low position in relation to his Savior, Jesus. Another thing you need to know about Rome is that it's an honor-shame culture. So that means that Romans were always trying to outdo one another in showing honor, and not in the good way that you and I are supposed to as Christians, but in a way of, Always trying to step over the other person, to climb a ladder, to be the best, to be recognized as the best, to be the most honorable. And they would live in fear of bringing shame on themselves or on their family name. You and I live in a guilt innocence culture. So we live like we want to be innocent in the eyes of the law. That's what motivates a lot of our behavior. And we don't want to be found guilty. So let's just Go with me for a second here, that maybe you sped on the way in this morning. Maybe. We're just speaking in hypotheticals, that maybe you went above the speed limit on the way here this morning because you were running late. What probably made you look at your speedometer and think, that's probably good, I probably need to cap it off there? You didn't want to get a ticket. You didn't want to be found guilty in the eyes of the law. That's a different motivator than what these Romans would have felt. And so for Paul to say that he is a servant, he is calling himself, he is naming himself in a position of shame. This was the lowest of the low he could go. But in relationship to his Savior Jesus, Paul sees himself as just a servant. And in thinking about that, I think about how I often describe myself. If you and I went to coffee and you asked me to tell you about myself, I'd probably lead with something like, I'm Gary and Virginia's daughter, I'm a sister, a friend, an aunt, I went to Auburn, I live in Texas now. Like all of these things I would probably tell you are important about me. So I was so convicted by how Paul leads with not his resume, not his background, but that he's a servant of Jesus Christ. I want to actually believe that the most important thing about me is that I belong to Christ and I'm a servant of him. Paul doesn't only say that he's a servant, though. He also says that he was called to be an apostle. So we know that apostle means one who is sent, and the word there for called refers to a divine calling. It was not just anyone who told Paul that he would make a great apostle, and so he said, yeah, okay, that's what I am now. It was God himself who called Paul an apostle. And the Lord has given Paul this position to proclaim the gospel, not to make much of Paul, but to make much of Christ. That word gospel means good news. And Paul is talking about the good news that Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on a cruel Roman cross, and was buried and resurrected three days later. That is a big deal for Paul, and it's a big deal for us in this room today. The God of this gospel is not far off and angry and vindictive, sitting there with his arms crossed, just waiting to see how things turn out. But he is loving and gracious and near, and he has revealed himself to us in his word. If we're really going to understand the beauty of the gospel, as Paul is going to describe it in Romans, we need to understand and gaze on the beauty of God himself. Read with me on your verse sheet, Exodus 34, 6 through 7. It says, The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the God who sent his son out of his great mercy to save us. And this gospel is not a new idea. This is not something new that God came up with later on when he saw how sin had ravaged the world. This is something he promised long ago And Paul is saying, God has delivered on his promise. What you've been waiting for and hoping for has come to pass. The Messiah has come. This is the good news that the Jews especially have been waiting for. They're waiting for their Savior. They're waiting for the Messiah. And everything, Paul is saying, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, And so you're going to hear a lot of Old Testament— let's talk a lot about the Old Testament over the next several weeks. So really quick, I want to give you a 30,000-foot view of what some of these things are when we say everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. So really quickly, God gave his people the law. The law refers to the commandments that were given by God to the Jews or the nation of Israel. And it told them how they were supposed to live and eat and worship And there were a lot of these laws. There were 613. And sometimes we hear about the law and we think, God is so restrictive. And he just has so many rules. And why would I ever want to follow a God who's so restrictive? But hear me say that God is holy. And sin cannot be in the presence of God. And God so desired to live with his people to dwell among them, that he gave them the law so that he could live with them. It is a merciful thing that he gave them the law. But the people broke it, and they couldn't keep all the laws. And again, because God is loving and gracious, he gave them a way to be reconciled to him. He gave them sacrifices. Sin offerings were made, and the blood of animals was spilled to reconcile God's people back to him. Look at Hebrews 9.22 on your verse sheet. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But Christ was the sacrifice once and for all. His blood was spilled one time, and it forgave sin forever. Look with me at Hebrews 9.25-26. Nor was it to offer himself, that's Christ, repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ is the perfect and the final sacrifice. Paul also talks about prophets here, and prophets were just men or women who were sent by God to the nation of Israel to tell them to turn from sin and to tell them the truth of God and to tell them of a coming Messiah. And lastly, God's people, or the nation of Israel, is a group that Paul is going to directly address later in his letter to the Romans. The Jewish people knew the law. They knew the prophecies. Their eyes were always scanning the horizon for their Messiah and for their Savior. And they rejected Jesus because they thought that their king was going to save them from the earthly oppression and tyranny they lived under. And they didn't realize that Jesus came to save them from a much greater enemy and a much greater threat, which was sin and death. He came to rescue them from the bondage of their sin, not their citizenship." So let's keep going to see what Paul says about who Jesus is. He calls Jesus son, which gets at the personal and intimate relationship that Jesus had with God the Father. And he says that he was descended from David according to the flesh. Paul is making a statement here about the human lineage of Jesus Christ. If you were here with us to study 2 Samuel, you may remember in 2 Samuel 7 that the Lord tells David that David's throne will reign forever. Matthew 1 tells us that Jesus is descended from the line of David. It gives us the whole lineage of Jesus. So Paul's saying, yes, he is descended of David. He is the true son of David. And the Lord kept his promise to David. The throne of David reigns forever because the throne of Christ reigns forever. Jesus was not just a man, though. He was also God. And Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead proves that he was the Son of God. Jesus was fully man and fully God. And through Jesus Christ, our Lord, Paul says in verse 5, "...we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations." So that we there, Paul is most likely talking about him and other apostles that have received apostleship. Okay, so I think we got that, but I want us to zoom in on a couple of other things. First, Paul doesn't rattle off his resume and explain why he's received apostleship because of all he's done and because of who he is. He credits the grace of Jesus. All that he is— He owes to the Lord. And secondly, Paul says the reason he's been given apostleship in this position of honor is for the obedience of the church. Not so that he can beat them into submission, but so that he can bring about their flourishing. That he can bring about their obedience. He wants them to live like they believe the gospel is true. And this is going to be one of Paul's driving thoughts throughout Romans that faith prompts obedience. And sometimes we hear that word obedience and we think we have to keep a lot of rules and it's very legalistic. But understand that obedience to God is always, always for your flourishing. It is always for your health and for the benefit and the health of the other people around you. Not physically, but your spiritual health. Obedience to God is always for your good. And the beauty of obedience is part of Paul's opening thought here in chapter 1, and it will be among his closing thoughts in chapter 16. So there's my plug for you to stick it out all semester, because he's going to stick with the same things throughout. From beginning to end, Paul does not just want their faith to go to their heads. He wants it to make it to their hands and for their whole lives to be transformed. And so as we move to verses 6 and 7, we see who Paul is addressing. Paul wants to bring about the obedience of all the nations, or all Gentile churches. And then he gets more specific in verse 7. He says to all of those in Rome. He's saying all of the churches in Rome he's writing to. And Paul describes them in two ways. He says they're loved by God. I think it is interesting and reassuring that he does not talk about their love for God, but God's steadfast and sure and unwavering love for them. And then he says they're called as saints, which refers to God's calling of them. The focus of describing these Christians is not how great they are, but how great their God is. And Paul calls them saints, which means holy ones. They have been set apart Because they belong to a God who's set apart. And the same is true for us. Because we belong to Christ, we are considered saints. We are called saints. Not because we've earned it, not because we're that great, but because the grace of God has been extended to us and the righteousness of Christ has been placed on us. We are made holy by God. That's the beauty of the gospel. Paul lays out this very dense and unusual but clear introduction for us at the beginning of his letter to the Romans. Paul has been called by God. We have been called by God. Paul is Christ's servant. So are we. And Paul's purpose, and my prayer for us over these next several weeks, is that the love of God for us and our faith in him would prompt obedience Let your faith move you to obedience. Okay, we've made it through the first section. My promise to you is this next part is going to go much quicker. So look with me at verses 8 through 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, That I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome." The intensity and the fervor of these churches in Rome has reached Paul. And you saw on the map, he is not just in the next town over. He is a good ways away. And he has heard about their faith. Their faith is being talked about throughout the known world. Paul expresses his overwhelming desire to be among these people. And why? Because he loves them. Because he wants to be with them. He wants to strengthen them and encourage them. And this so struck me as I studied because Paul is highly honored. And he has so much influence and so much authority, frankly, in these early churches. Yet, he wants to wield all of his power and all of his privilege and all of his honor for the good of those he serves, for their flourishing. He sees himself truly as a servant of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but he is humble enough to recognize that they have something to offer him. He wants to be encouraged and strengthened by their faith. He does not see himself as someone who is so important and so high up that he's just going to come and dispense knowledge and encouragement to them and then just move on and pat himself on the back. He knows that he needs to receive the good gift of encouragement from his brothers and sisters in Rome. It seems like the more power Paul gets, the more he wants to lay it down. For the good of the people around him. And that is so opposite of the economy of the world, isn't it? Like we think that the more power we get, the more we've probably earned it. Therefore, the more we should wield it. But that's not the message of the gospel. Paul does not want to be with these believers to condemn them or to lord over them. He wants to pour himself out for their good. And I thought about this and what a picture this is of the gospel and a life submitted to Christ. And then I realized Paul's just imitating Christ. Because Paul says in Philippians 2 how Christ put off his glory, he emptied himself of glory to come live with us, to come dwell among us, to eat with us, to walk among us, to grieve with us. Paul's imitating Christ. He empties himself as Christ emptied himself, not of divinity, but of glory. Paul has never been with these churches in Rome, and he's like, I really wanted to be with you. I've really tried. Over and over again, I've tried to be with you, and I just, I just can't get there. And so now he's writing to them in order to preach the gospel, One other quick note here about brothers in verse 13. You probably noticed that I read in ancestors. Um, That Greek word there for brothers literally translates to brothers. But it would have been used the same way that we use y'all. It would have been used in a mixed-gendered setting. So you just read ancestors into that. Um, I don't want you to feel left out by that. So Paul had you in mind. Think of it like y'all. And so, for Paul's original audience, what he's saying is not only radical because he's talking to men and women, but because he's talking to Jews and Gentiles. He, re- he reiterates that he is under obligation to Greeks, which he's saying they're the Gentiles that lived inside that Greco-Roman culture. Barbarians, which would have been the Gentiles outside of the Greco-Roman culture. He says he's under obligation to the educated, so those people who are esteemed highly in their culture, and the foolish, those who are uneducated, who would have been considered the very lowest of the low. Paul's leveling the playing field here. The gospel is for all people. And for Paul, the churches in Rome are a real cause for celebration. I hope that you can feel his enthusiasm for what's happening in these Roman churches. He wants them to be strengthened by his presence, and he wants to be strengthened by their faith. And we need to remember this. We need to immerse ourselves in Christian community so that we can encourage others and be encouraged by them. We live in a hyper individualized culture and we legitimately have an epidemic of loneliness. We think we have this illusion of being more connected than we've ever been because we have smartphones and we can see what happened across the world less than an hour later and we can send a text four time zones away and it arrives instantaneously. But Actually, the studies are showing us that we're lonelier and we're more isolated than maybe any other society in the history of the world. In May of 2023, less than a year ago, the U.S. Surgeon General released a report stating that living in isolation or chronic loneliness increases our risk of premature death by 29%. It significantly increases the risk of heart disease, stroke, and type 2 diabetes, it increases your risk of developing dementia by 50%. Loneliness. It's, the report also stated that loneliness is more dangerous for your health than smoking one pack of cigarettes every single day. We were made, we were hardwired for, for community. You were hardwired to need each other, and to need the church. The church is God's good gift to you. If you look around or if you turn on the news and what you see scares you and your throat gets tight and there's a pit in your stomach, I would encourage you to reach out to someone around you. Foster a friendship. Mentor someone. Ask someone to mentor you. You need each other. I need you. You need the church. So keep showing up. We want you here. We need you here. Okay, let's look at these last two verses here to close us out. Paul writes in verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In this final stretch of Paul's opening, he says that he's not ashamed of the gospel because this is how God brings salvation to his people. And he says it came first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Paul's talking here about how Jesus came to save the Jews. He came as the king of the Jews. But the Jewish people rejected him. And in Matthew twenty three thirty seven, it's on your verse sheet, Jesus says, "'O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing?' Jesus is saying this as he's turning his attention from solely Israel and extends the invitation of salvation to the Gentiles. That's what Paul's talking about here. And this would have been insulting to some of his Jewish audience. We often think of Paul as this great guy who is very well loved by those in the church. And he was, but he was also criticized by both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Jewish Christians thought that Paul didn't keep enough of their customs, that he had forsaken too much of the law. But Gentile Christians thought he still did too many of those things, and he was still too Jewish. So we really can't win here. I mean, he's kind of between a rock and a hard place. So for Paul to say that he is not ashamed of the gospel, of the freedom he's found, freedom from having to keep the law perfectly, and freedom from lawlessness— He's saying, I care about both of you. I'm not ashamed of this good news that has come to all of you. I was recently talking with a friend who was telling me about a difficult life circumstance and this opportunity that she, uh, frankly, probably should have been given, but she was passed over for. And um, if you can imagine it, I was much more worked up about this than she was. Uh, I just had so much indignation (laughs) that she had been passed over. Uh, And I said, that's not fair. Like, things should not have gone that way. And she said, yeah, it's not fair, but the gospel's not really fair. So I don't really want to use that as my measuring stick, which put me right back in my place. I pretty much shut my mouth. Um, And she's right. We don't deserve grace. It's not fair that God's Son died on a cross— For my sin. It's not fair that I receive grace when I deserved punishment. These things are not fair. And yet, this is the message of the gospel God gives grace freely and fully to those who believe. And the gospel reveals the righteousness of God given to believers by faith, not their works. Righteousness means being in the right with God. There is no longer animosity between you and God because of Christ. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, when the Lord looks at you, he does not see your sin, but he sees the perfect and spotless righteousness of Jesus. And this righteousness is a proclamation of the gospel. As Paul says, it's revealed from faith to faith. He's talking about a tradition and a legacy of faith that we can steward and pass to others. His entire thesis for the book of Romans is encapsulated here in verse 17 when he says, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith is the currency in the kingdom of God, not works It is not how well you obey that saves you. It is not even the strength of your belief that saves you. It is the strength of the one in whom you put your belief that saves you. Righteousness is not given to us because our faith is so strong, but because Christ is strong you don't have to live as a person burdened and shackled by sin and shame freedom is yours freedom is yours all you have to do is believe that's it and so maybe you're here today and you've never trusted christ to save you from your sin and if that's you the invitation is open to you and if you're realizing that or maybe you came in already knowing that I would love to have that conversation with you. Find your table leader. Find someone. Grab anyone uh, and have that conversation. Today can be the day. The invitation's open. But for many of us in this room, I suspect that we've already believed, but we're still trying to do some of it on our own. Maybe you know in your head that God's pleased with you when he looks at you because of Christ. But a lot of it, a lot of your life, you're still trying to grit out and do yourself and work for approval and work to be loved and earn people's affection. Many of you know that I lost my mom to cancer three and a half years ago. And in the months before she died, she was having more and more issues with mobility. And she was only 60 when she died. uh, But in the last few months, she had a walker. And I'm going to tell you, she hated that thing. It was her worst enemy. She did not want to use it. I mean, if you suggested it to her, she would all but roll her eyes. You know, like she just wanted to not need it. She wanted to be independent. And I can understand that. And so one day I was upstairs at my parents' house and I heard some commotion downstairs. And so I went down the stairs and I saw that mom had fallen in the kitchen And she was okay. She sat herself up and she wasn't quite ready to get up yet. And so I just sat down on the floor with her and we sat there for a little while and after a few minutes I said, "Uh, Mom, why didn't you use your walker? I noticed that she left it at the kitchen table, which, hint, she was not near the kitchen table when she fell. She left that thing behind. And I said, why didn't you use your walker? And she said, well, because I was making toast and I needed to have both hands to, you know, carry the plate back to the table, or I couldn't only push the walker with one hand. And I said, well, why didn't you call me? I was just upstairs, and I would have been happy to get that for you or make the toast for you. There were ways around this. And she said, yeah, I know, Cam, but I just wanted to do it myself. And I have thought of that so often over the past several years. That stubbornness in her and that stubbornness in me that just wants to do it myself. I want to be self-sufficient. I want to be seen as worthy and strong and willing and capable. And I bring all of that stubbornness and, frankly, all of that pride into my relationship with the Lord I know that Christ paid for my sin, but sometimes I think, didn't I—I probably did enough good that I got partially, partially there. And I know that I'm approved of in Christ, but I still work for the approval of other people. I still want people to like me and to think I'm great. And I know that I can't really make up for things I've done that I'm not proud of. But if I'm honest, sometimes I give or I participate in something just because I think I should. And I hope people will notice. Not out of a heart that is joyful and thankful for what I've been given in Christ. And so for me, and maybe for you, the invitation today is to turn from that. To turn from trying to do it myself and to trust in the finished work of Christ. I need to trust fully in the finished work of Christ on my behalf. I can trust in the glorious gospel that Paul's going to unpack in Romans. And I can put my full weight on Christ, not leaving him across the kitchen because the distance really isn't that far and the task really isn't that hard and surely I can just muscle it up myself. No, I can put my full weight on the righteousness of Christ that has been so graciously gifted to me and my whole life can be transformed by it. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for your word and for your grace. Your grace that not only saves us from our sin at the moment of salvation, but saves us from ourselves when we keep trying to do it ourselves. And we just think if we try harder and do better, if we make the right resolution, if we do the right thing, everything will just be better this time. Lord, would you help us to throw our full weight on Christ? Would you help us to trust that he was sufficient on our behalf? And would you open our eyes to the wonder of the gospel this semester? Would you open our eyes to the wonder of Christ our King who sits enthroned and reigns forever? And we ask all these things in his matchless name. Amen.